This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay talk with Matthew Sweet. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me, as always, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, it's episode 224 our 224th episode, season five. And for this one, we're taking a bit of a detour. This is Australia month. However, we had an opportunity to uh, do an interview that was not Australia related. And we took it. So we sure did. We did, Jay. Uh, We we jump at those chances. (laughs) Pounced on it. Exactly. Like a cat with a little catnip toy. Uh, joining us for this episode, I don't even know where to begin. Like I don't, I don't want to be, begin to explain the history or whatever. I'm just going to say, joining us for this episode from Omaha, Nebraska, Mr. Matthew Sweet. So the the first thing we wanted to ask you about is uh, the most recent uh, stuff, which is the Kickstarter campaign that you kicked off last year and and are, I guess, on track. Is it going to be this year that a new record is going to be coming out? Yes. Yeah, it will be. I mean, you know, my initial hope on the project was April, and I'm, you know, kind of two, three months behind sort of at this point, which... You know, everyone says that it, everyone's late on, on Kickstarter, right. but you have to kind of try to set a bar that, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> or maybe, uh, you know, try to keep a schedule. So I did that, but I'm a little behind. It makes me slightly paranoid, but if it's better for the record, then hopefully no one will care too much. So when you go into the campaign, do you already have, say, demos done before you even do the campaign, no, or is it completely from scratch yeah it's from scratch in this case the campaign you know the whole idea was i would write songs i would make demos and then i would record and one of the possible uh reward scenarios was getting a disc or download or whatever of the demos as well okay now i've started doing that and i've done some of those but i i happen to have my band coming in uh to do a benefit show for here in nebraska which is an organization you know i moved to omaha do you know this yeah of course because yep. we're talking about full time and uh so there's this organization here that just promotes nebraska music it's sort of like a non-profit and i happen to be doing a benefit show for them on saturday so my band had to come in for that so i'm actually going to do some recording next week we'll be sort of breaking ground on the album itself as far as the fulfillment goes you added some things. A lot of bands will do like T-shirts or uh, equipment. They might include a guitar. You added some things that I would consider non-traditional fulfillments for your your campaign. The artwork, the the sculptures, that sort of thing. Are you going to be? So are you basically in charge then of your? Are you going to be 
putting those in boxes and shipping them out and yeah i'll be doing all that stuff although all of it follows the record i mean for me because if i get bogged down on all these other things i'll never finish one you know what i mean so i'm trying to focus on the record first and then deliver uh the stuff yeah there's some some crazy ones like you know 30 minute Skype calls. I've probably got, you know, three weeks of those. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, really, it's probably not that many, but I know I have to fulfill a lot of those at some point. And there's the, yeah, some of them are 3D printed sculptures that I then paint and kind of with metal paints that patina and stuff. And then there is a bronze piece, which I still have to finish. I have to finalize what it's going to be. And then that's just a process of casting. So, yeah, those are the main things. There are a couple. There's at least one house party, I think, down in Georgia. Yeah, I mean, the Kickstarter thing's really cool. It's really fun to feel the support from people who are actually fans. It's a thing I guess I don't quite understand because I don't know much about anyone else's history with it. It seems like like I'm worried no one will ever do it again. Like I could never go there again. <laughs> Somehow they'll all hate me afterwards or something. But uh, but it was just something I kept saying I would try for so long, and finally I did. That's a great point in terms of um, I'm trying to think, rack my brain um, of two-time you know artists that have done albums through Kickstarter. I can't come up with one. I'm sure they're out there, <laughs> but you know I think to your point, it's yeah. How many times can you do it? I know that we talked to uh, Aaron Perino from the Sheila Divine, and I think they he swore off ever doing them again just because the logistics um, were so difficult for them. In terms of the you know being responsible for the fulfillment part, it almost yeah. uh, it became overwhelming once it was completed, and they had to you know make sure everybody got taken care of. Yeah, and I can see that. Like uh, you know, I'm up for that, but I can see why that would be a super drag for people that just didn't want to deal with that side of things. You know. Yeah. Full disclosure: I have a management manager and management company still, so they you know will help a lot with that end of things, but. The the thing itself, I did really just all on my own. Right. The the uh, actual uh, campaign. Gotcha. So your last release was the the third volume of the under the covers that you did with um, Susanna, and I'm curious, is that project going to be continuing? Um, I've every one of those has been super fun in terms of the songs that you've selected. And I like that you've sort of moved through the decades from the '60s and the '70s into the '80s. Um, has there been a thought of maybe doing a, a 90s version you know, with, like, Teenage Fan Club and Jellyfish and those kind of uh, bands? Well, there, there'd be plenty of great stuff to cover, I think. Um, I don't know if we will or not. I mean, the, the thing in the beginning was sort of a brainchild of Shout Factory, which is was started by some people from Rhino Records, and they're really more of an overall kind of media company. But they've been talking to Susanna and wanted us to do like some kind of covers records together and we were talking about working together and so you know it was a way we could do it easily and be actually getting paid or something so we decided let's do this record and we did it and it was funny because when it came time to put it out they put volume one on it and we'd never conceived that we would make another one <laughs> so mm -hmm. thought that was pretty funny and uh that record did okay like it was still at a time when i guess more records sold than now or something and so that that record actually did pretty well and then we did a second one 
And, you know, between each record, it was like the industry got worse and worse. So it was kind of like a miracle that we did another one each time. <laughs> it was really kind of strange. But by the time we did the last one, it's just, I just don't know that they, that Shout would ever do another one. And I think it'd be, if we did, it'd be great if it had all the same artwork and all that same stuff. So I, I'm not going to say never, but I just wonder, you know, I kind of just have a feeling those three are kind of, the thing it's a trilogy then it's you're not going to go you know yeah, if Susanna said let's make a you know Hawaiian album I would go great you know so who knows <laughs> you know we may do something you mentioned about getting the the band together in the in the near future for the the benefit show and then to do some recording and I kind of wanted to go back a little bit in terms of your career and talk about um, Richard Lloyd because um, I assume that's who you're talking about in terms of getting the band together at this point? Actually, no, I don't have Richard coming out. When I'm saying my band, it's really my live band. But oh, okay. Rick Mank, Rick Mank, my drummer, and Paul, Paul Chastain uh, plays bass with me. But he's, you know, they're my good friends from way back. They have their own group, Velvet Crush. Right. And and uh, so I'll be, those two are going to stay for a week, and we're going to start doing some basic uh, tracks and then my lead guitar player Dennis Taylor, who's done it for last you know few years, he couldn't stay on this trip, but you know, I'm sure he'll play on it as well. But yeah, I don't, I haven't talked to Richard. Last time I saw him, he wasn't in a fantastic place, but he was kind of hanging in there, and um, I just uh, haven't really pursued it exactly, but. Uh, the new record, I'm kind of thinking I'm going to play a lot of stuff myself anyway, get a little bit back to more kind of uh, playing little bits of lead and stuff, which is kind of what I did back when we did, you know, Girlfriend and and those records with, that Richard played on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Quine's gone. Richard and I stayed friend all, friends all through the years, and he has played on a lot of my records. But uh, on this one... I just think it's going to be the very insular small group. Gotcha. Well, you mentioned Rick, the drummer from Velvet Crush, and that's a band that Jay and I are both fans of, um, specifically the Teenage Symphonies to God album. I think we reviewed that record in like the first or second season of the podcast. Yeah. Oh, and that's great. Episode 43. Oh, Jay, bringing, bringing up the episode <laughs> number. There you go. I, I, re- I read a quote from you that you said, uh, that you just described your music as rock music, but it seemed like in the '90s there was like a movement of bands that were into like Big Star and and Pet Sounds era Beach Boys, like you and Velvet Crush and Jellyfish and the Jayhawks. And I'm curious if at the time you were aware of, obviously you're aware of like Velvet Crush, but if you're aware of sort of this like underground, for lack of a better term, power pop movement that was going on, even though all those bands sort of have their own kind of twist on it yeah yeah i think so i mean for me you know when i got out of high school and when i was in high school you know i started out loving like really more melodic end of kind of new wave punk invasion stuff a lot of british groups and people you know melodic people like elvis costello and xtc and nick lowe and all that kind of stuff and i'm sure rick loved all that same stuff but by the time i was getting out of high school, and when I moved down to Athens to go to school, um, then I was discovering things like Big Star, you know, the Raspberries, and some other things I just didn't really know about before. 
so by the time Rick and I met, you know, I had been turned on to Pet Sounds. I'd been um, turned on to uh, Big Star. And we just liked really the same kind of music. When I was in a duo called Buzz of Delight in Athens, Georgia, I got a fan letter from Rick Mank. And he was in a group called The Reverbs in Illinois. They opened up for The Clash. And it was actually another two-person group. It was like him and another guy. <laughs> Uh, drums and a guitar player, and that's kind of what Buzz of Delight was. So we had a kinship from that and from being from the Midwest. So <clears throat> we were aware of that power pop thing. <clears throat> I don't think that, it, at least from Rick, probably always understood musical genres and everything better than me because he's really uh, listens to, knows about a lot of records and a lot of music and stuff kind of compared to me. Um, but... Uh, well, like I said, I'll wander off and I won't remember where I'm going. It was just about, did you feel as a, whether or not you realize it in the power pop genre, that you were uh, kind of swimming yeah, upstream yeah, I, in the <laughs> 90s in terms of what was popular, specifically like in the early 90s with Nirvana and Pearl Jam and those sorts of bands? Well, we noticed the other bands that liked groups like we did, and um, we knew about power pop. And I think when really it started to come together as more than just something people said was when I don't know a hundred percent what the label was, but somebody made a power pop series. You guys probably know what that is. And it was a, some sort of multi-volume series. And they actually made a poster that was some kind of lineage of power pop. Have you ever seen that? It probably would have been Rhino, right? They did all those compilations of genres yeah it must have been rhino then oh you'd get a kick out of it if you've never seen this thing because it's okay. like all the group on like a you know tree branch chart <laughs> and we were just excited to be on them you know i like you know i like things that are called power pop a lot and i probably if you ask me now that would be what i would say was my genre i guess well it seems like every rock band has to have a subgenre attached to it. You can't just be a rock band. You have to be, you know, an emo rock band or a punk rock band. Or, I mean, there's a, it's, it's like film. There's a million different film descriptions. There's a million different rock descriptions. So yeah, sure. that makes sense. It, the one thing that Jay and I have discussed, cause we've just, we've reviewed a number of different quote unquote power pop bands is that power pop seems to be a genre of music that musicians and really hardcore music fans love, but that, it really only gains appreciation in retrospect. And we have not figured out why, like Big Star is a perfect example. Big Star was yeah. a critical, critically acclaimed band, but nobody bought the record. Do you have any yeah. theories on that? Why Power Pop just doesn't seem to capture the, the moment when those albums come out? You know, that's a hard question to answer. I can see why you've asked it. You know? Yeah. I mean, partly, I think, of Power Pop, the roots would be like the Beatles or the Birds or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that would be the time when Power Pop was the most commercial, you know. Um, by the time it was the 70s, there were just so many different things going on. And anyone who became sort of Power Pop were the people sort of holding that torch of the more melodic 60s groups and not trying to just get away from it and do something totally different, you know. So, I mean, for me, I just always like more melodic music. It always just feels like more to me, and especially the kind of more meaningful, slower songs, they really feel like there's something in them, you know? And, and some genres of music, it's not 
about, you know, feelings or a personal thing. I mean, so I guess, I don't know. There's a lot of power pop groups, but there are power pop guys, you know, uh, Dwight Twilley or, you know, the guys from the Plimfold and the Beat, uh, Peter Case and Paul Collins. And there, there are all these people that are sort of power pop and, it, is, it does have this thing like it's, you know, ne- you never make it sort of in power pop. But I, I guess maybe that's why I was excited when I had my couple little bumps of success in the 90s that it proved that something power pop could break through, <laughs> sort of, you know. Right. But I think it's always kind of around, you know, you could call Oasis power pop or whoever, you know, that kind of is doing melodic music that has a little bit of a spunkiness to it you know absolutely and of all the stuff that we've reviewed from the 90s what what do we add all 200 episodes to him something around there it seems like the the power pop records are the ones that hold up the best you know they're that's that's great well um yeah i mean those are the kind of records that held up for me so that that's awesome i think if you have stuff that's just somehow has melodies and some feelings stuck in it it will last you know Mm -hmm. I, so I got to bring up, Jay and I saw you play at a Toledo Outdoor Festival in 1997 with the Gigolo Ants. Probably not going to remember the show. It's probably one of a million shows that you were playing back in the day. But I bring it up because the thing that I most remember is that you had about 15 different guitars uh, that, during that show. I think you played a double neck during a cover, cover of ELO's Duya. That, yeah, remembering. that tells us things yeah and it tells me when it is well you know when i had success it meant that i just worked all all the time and it was just kind of me 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 and like no time and either talking or traveling or playing you know and one of the small perks i had was like i would get guitars you know i'd be like that's what i'd look forward to like when we get to st louis i'm gonna get a guitar from Gretz or something, you know. Right. It's kind of what I look forward to and stuff. But over time, and so I like to play things that were the most recent guitars because it was just, you know, something I could use in my work. And that was also, like, hobby-like to me. But over time, I think I got to where I just like wearing mostly one guitar. So, like, now you'd rarely see me play more than a couple guitars and often just one in a whole show. Is there a certain guitars that you go to for writing certain types of songs or, or do certain guitars inform what you're going to write based on what sort of sounds they can produce? It's a good question. I think kind of like if I'm uh, playing like 12 string electric, I mean, I also have this really in my mind because it's kind of what I've been doing because I've been writing, but not writing stuff down, but just recording ideas and stuff. And sometimes I'll start the recorder on my iPhone or something, and then I'll I'll have a, <clears throat> like, for instance, the 12-string electrics already hooked up, making sound, and I'll just start. And then it's like I have to start doing some kind of song that doesn't exist. And if it's the 12-string, it might be kind of more jangly and poppy and kind of just gets a 60s vibe because you associate that sound a little bit with that. Mm-hmm. Whereas maybe if I... You know, if I picked up a steel, it's probably more than a particular brand of guitar or a particular one guitar. 
I think kinds of instruments might sort of affect it. So like if I write a song on piano, it's going to be really different than what I would do on guitar because I can just move around the chords in a way I'm probably not good at doing on the guitar <clears throat> or maybe impossible to do alone on the guitar. And then uh, say it's a steel string guitar, I might write a certain kind of more aggressive, sulky thing. I have one acoustic that's strung with like classical strings and that one I'd probably be more likely to write a gentler kind of acoustic -y thing. But that's not to say in any case it couldn't end up being something totally different. But I think they do sort of affect it a little bit. Do you play around with different amp combinations or do you have like a sort of a, a go-to amp that you use? No, I always am changing everything. I kind of um, just will try different things. Right now, I've been using these guitar amps made um, by these guys in, uh, I think they're in Illinois, called uh, Analog uh, Industries, I think, no, Analog Outfitters. <clears throat> and they make guitar amps out of Hammond organ preamps and power amps. Huh. And they're insanely cool, and great sounding. Um, and they made me, uh, I'm actually leaving somewhere with this, they made me a, a small, out of an old one, I guess they refurbished uh, a small Leslie speaker for me, which is a spinning speaker that makes classic, you know, right. beatly sounds and stuff. And so, like, for instance, I have that and I have the other amp and I'll have something going through both. And so one side's not swirling and one side is, and I can get a pretty cool sound going that makes me feel like I'm getting away to somewhere else, you know. And that Leslie, like, sort of produces almost like a tremolo effect right you can hit this there's a speed between a really slow which is almost it's more like a chorusy thinning kind of thing and then when you do it fast it's more like a organ vibrato but it's a real weird phase things happen so it sounds really cool so i read that you were uh, originally you started learning on bass is that right that's true i was a bass player <clears throat> and i got most of my initial learning and practice playing along with Yes Records. <laughs> and let me tell you, that that required very careful listening. Yeah. <laughs> and I think so. it helped me develop an ear for hearing notes and things. And I never really have written music. I don't even really know very much extensively about chords and all the different kinds of chords you can play. I'm very much sort of self-taught. But I know people that know all about it, like Greg Lee, for instance. <laughs> he may play on this record. Who knows? Maybe Richard will, too. But um, Greg knows just everything about every chord, and he's taught me all of it before. But somehow I just don't retain it. I just kind of do music really by feel. Well, it's, it's sort of like a language. If you don't learn a language as a kid, it's really hard to like learn the language as an adult. You have like a... I think the same thing with music. You have sort of a window as a kid where you can learn that information and then it yeah, stays with you forever. Yeah, you're right. I've never really thought of that, that it's that one time, but I'm sure at least it doesn't hurt because you're ahead of, ahead of the game. So I when did you, you have to have an ear for music in the first place, I guess. That's true. When did you switch from four to six strings? <laughs> well, um, it was after, let's see... Eighth grade is New Wave, and then I played bass 
I'm so good from playing with <laughs> with Yes records that I played with college age kids when I was in seventh grade. I played bass in a band. Wow. Oh. <laughs> which was a lot of learning. Or actually it would have been eighth grade, I'm sorry. And by ninth that was kind of going strongly. I'm telling doing this for myself because I know what I would have been doing. So I'm playing bass then and I kinda of start to write songs probably around tenth grade. So that would be when I played guitar. And and the reason I even got into doing it was because they came out I worked at a music store after school part time a place called Deets Music in downtown Lincoln, Nebraska, where I grew up. And uh, it was around the time when the very first four-track cassette recorders came out, where you could inexpensively, relatively, you know, take a regular audio cassette and stick it in a thing and make a four-track recording. And it was all built in one unit. And so once I had my hands on the first, I don't know, Fostex cassette recorder or something, <clears throat> then I wanted to learn to play and sing and stuff because I just want, I was, uh, you know, curious to multi-track. I just wanted to hear what things sounded like when I built on top of it. And it was something I could do with no one, you know, I didn't have to be with any other musicians to kind of explore it. So it was super personal. So you're pretty young, you're working in a record store, you have four tracks that you're recording on, you're playing with older musicians. At what point do you decide, all right, this is going to be this is going to be my career, or not my career because it makes it sound like a job, but this is what I'm yeah. going to pursue as opposed to I think I want to be a doctor. Like when do you yeah, kind of I think, reach that? I think I I wanted to do music once I was you know of junior high age. I'm sure if you could find, there's probably some yearbook where I say, you know, I want to be a musician or something. I think my thinking of it at the, at the time was maybe I can play bass. You know, I could be like a studio bass player or something, you know. Like you, at the time, you know, guitar player and bass player magazines with no internet or anything, you know, that's how you found out about sort of the player's side, you know, the instruments and cool stuff and everything. And so I kind of thought, well, I could, you know, I know I can kind of play bass. I, I never would have guessed I'd do what I've ended up doing, I don't think, at that time. Um, even when I got to college and I was in Athens and making more demos, I kind of thought I'd have a band name like so many people have, you know, <laughs> um, instead of using their name, really. But um, when I got my development deal with Columbia, they said we think you should be a solo artist and use your real name. And it freaked me out, but it was like Columbia Records. And I'm like, okay, I can figure out who I am and whatever, you know. So uh, that really got me more in the path of being forced to kind of get in touch with who am I if I'm just this guy. I hated records when they had just a picture of a guy with a guitar on them or whatever. <laughs> you know, like immediately... I wanted to fuck up the way any photography looked. You know, I just was trying to have it not be this boring thing. But it really took until Girlfriend when I was really out on a limb before I just was like, it. nobody cared and I could just do whatever. So, like, I got away with not having my picture on the front cover finally, you know, when I made Girlfriend. Right. Well, that makes sense then because, you know, obviously in preparing for the interview, I went back and re-listened to the, the whole discography and listening to the first two records 
and then listening to your girlfriend record, that is the like the guitar is the change. Like the songwriting is is a little bit different, and but your voice is you know it's your voice, but the it's the guitars that seem to say we don't care. Like we're gonna start going. That's why I was asking about Richard Lloyd earlier. Is because yeah, it seems yeah. like such well, a dichotomy I'll... between the vocal and the and the the melodic clean vocal, and then these crazy guitar leads that are going on in a lot of the record. Yes, and they were featured in a different way because of the production. Um, it's interesting to note that both Richard Lloyd and Klein played a lot on the record before it. Uh, the big thing that was really different on that record was their real live drums. And on that second record, we programmed the drums. I programmed the drums because I was trying to do everything myself, but I wasn't really good at playing drums, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but I played with Rick, and he was an amazing drummer, so I knew like it, it could be great to play live drums. But it was really when I made the demos for Girlfriend and I played drums myself, and they had these crazy, shitty drums on them. Um, that was kind of the key to getting a feel for what Girlfriend would be, because I just it just felt very different than what I'd done before. And all of us were becoming friends around that time. Lloyd Cole was had come around, and he was, you know, working with Klein, and I was playing bass with him, and Fred was involved. And so everybody kind of knew each other, so that by the time we were doing Girlfriend, it was just we had very little supervision. So we could just kind of go in and go, and I could go, let's do this and this and this. And, yeah, and I would, I want, I liked mistakes. I wanted mistakes to stay in, you know. And that does change that record as well. There's more, although we did heavily comp to make the leads on them, we kept more weird stuff, you know? Which is I sort guess. of the antithesis of, not the antithesis, but a lot of power pop is perfect. It's it's pristine in terms of production and in terms of, you know, all the vocals and the harmonies and everything like yeah. that. I think that's why that record is such a... a a gut shot because it's like you're expecting that sort of pristine perfectness, but then there's these blazing guitars and these drums that are, you know, just the girlfriend drums. I mean, those are iconic fills and roles that he's doing in that song. And it's just a, a statement of like, in the same way that hearing like, um, you know, like dinosaur junior or something like that, where you're like, this shouldn't be working this way with the way that the <laughs> vocals and these guitars and, and everything, but yet it's absolutely magic when it's all together. So I, I, that was another thing, I, you know, these records that are like 25, 30 years old, which pains me to say that, but going back and listening to them with fresh ears after, you know, a couple years of not listening to stuff, it sometimes it's just like, wow, I, I like the, to me, I cannot believe that that was on the radio. It seems like so yeah. foreign now that that would be mm-hmm. on the radio. Thought they were crazy. I mean, it's like my man, my lawyer up to that time had started managing Indigo Girls, and he became my manager on that record. And so um, <laughs> he, you know, we ended up in limbo because my A and R guy at A and M Records, who we made the record for, was sort of shut out in a coup when Polygram bought the label. And uh, there was this interim guy, David Adderley, who's like a classic 60s Brian Wilson, Van Dyke Parks crony. And he came in 
in the interim at A&R. And he actually called us about the record and, like, really liked it. But Russell talked to him, and, you know, they both kind of thought we should sell it, and, you know, they're not, it'll get buried and nothing will ever happen with it. So then we went and tried to sell it, and Russell's idea, was, who's still my manager, by the way, was that girlfriends should be on AOR radio. And I thought they were crazy. I'm like, no one is ever going to put something like that. I didn't, you know, I couldn't conceive of being on the radio or having any kind of success of selling records until it happened. Because that wasn't even my concern. Like, I should have been more worried <clears throat> after making a couple records. But I just, so much to me, it was about making the record. The idea that I would somehow be some kind of star just wasn't exactly on my radar. You know, that was like maybe something they could think about, but, but I got a, you know, kind of a rude awakening when girlfriend became successful because, you know, my life changed just a lot really fast. How much of that was because of the video? Was that a huge impact as well? They, everything had impact back then radio MTV, I think had a lot more impact. Um, if you could get on 120 minutes, your sales just kind of went up a little bit, which was the place where kind of uh, more all fringy kind of things started mm-hmm. out there. You hoped that you graduated onto some kind of real rotation or whatever. They, they had a lot of influence, and I spent a lot of time up there and did a lot of things for them. I kept having to do – I did a lot of, like, talking head stuff for them, <laughs> like just – introducing things or doing bumpers for things. And God, it'd be funny for someone to see some of that stuff. Maybe not me at this point. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think MTV had a big influence and radio, you know, had a big influence and it just, I had to deal with working those things all, all the time. And it was secondary to everyone to the shows or how good they were or how tired I was. So, you know, it was kind of like, you know, it just was it just was hard because it was so never ending. You know, it just for two or three or four years there, it just was constant traveling and talking and playing shows or recording. And, and you know, I love doing the recording. It's really took me to later to sort of uh, come to terms with playing live in a way where I'm really comfortable with it. I think it, back in the early days, I used to kind of get take out my frustrations through it. You know what I mean? I might just mm-hmm. not be able to look at a crowd a whole night and just want to turn up my guitar so loud that I can't hear anything else in the world. <laughs> you know, drink a lot or something. <laughs> These days, it's much, I'm, I have a much better time playing live and I'm probably better in terms of sheer performance than I was then. <clears throat> and I see people that cared about it. So it's so totally different. You know, it's, it's like we're all going back to this thing you know i've been really lucky and with girlfriend's anniversary <laughs> even added to our ability to go out and still tour and do well and and that's that's an awesome thing just to think somebody cared about it i mean that's the best thing about girlfriend was that people you know it's connected to their feelings from that time people growing up and falling in love or falling out of love or getting dumped or dumping people <laughs> or whatever so, and whoever was in college right then, you know, they, they're awesome fans. They come back and not only do they really enjoy it, but they're not like stayed or anything. They like get rocking, you know? 
was there ever a period where you were sick of the song? Because a lot of artists who have had hit singles at some point get sick of that single. Um, you know, it's hard for me to treat any of my little songs badly because they're my songs, you know? Right. Um, I, I have a weird thing where I just don't feel that. I've never felt like, God, I can't believe I have to play this song one more time. <laughs> I like when people know a song, you know what I mean? So if I have one, I know some people like, I really like to play it because they get so excited <laughs> and everything. Right. Um, I don't feel, you know, I feel like the diehard fans are going to check out my records. You know, I don't have to put them down the throat of, you know, audiences coming around all the time. <clears throat> now, having said that, I usually add a few new songs each time we do a record or at least do a couple from it, depending on what we're doing. The last one, we did the least of that because we were having to play the entire girlfriend album all during that campaign and for the year after it. So, um, it was harder to do cause it just kind of took me out of it. it. took so much out of me to do the whole record. Just kind of, it was just like kind of tiring and sort of emotionally draining <laughs> to kind of just live all through it, you know? So, uh, it was harder to add more things, but it, towards, I guess last summer we started adding in other records again, Altered Beast and a few other things. Speaking of Altered Beast, that's a great opportunity for a segue. Um, <laughs> that's when, so Jay and I were in college in the 90s, and uh, I started in a, a few years before Jay. So like Altered Beast through 100% Fun and Blue Sky and Mars, those were the like, we were working at college radio in the 90s. Those were the albums that, we were listening to girlfriend was like the high school album and it's appropriate that you mentioned about the the feelings with the about a girlfriend or something like that because that's definitely appropriate with that record and that song and then there's like a maturing i think with altered beast it seems like it gets a little darker or or it's a more snarl to the guitar and can you just talk about the evolution of of both in terms of songwriting and then also production from Girlfriend Alter Beast, because it seemed like there was a bit of a break in terms of the sound. It just seemed like it got a little raw between those records. You know, part of what I felt that was the greatest thing from Girlfriend being successful was that I'll do whatever I want, you know, and I can do something cool, you know, or whatever. And I mean, I guess I thought that when I did Girlfriend, but there was uh, the experience of the success of that record, I think, had really opened me up to my own darker side. I couldn't keep it 
in check at all because I was just swinging so wildly with just the amount of weirdness in my life, you know? And I started to feel like there were two people. And one of them was this horrible monster kind of person that represents everything dark and evil. And this other person was like more like a loving, caring, thoughtful human being. And I was kind of swinging between them. So that by the time I made that record, I, I really felt like there were the songs by that guy and songs by that guy. I mean, it was, I don't have split personality, but it just felt very much like that. And so Altered Beast, like as a title, it makes such perfect sense for that record because that was this video game where, you know, if you, you're fighting off these zombies and um, eventually, I can't remember how it worked. If you succeed, you transform into the beast, or if they kill you, you become the beast. I can't really remember exactly, but you turn into this big, evil, powerful creature in order to prevail. So Altered Beast, I just kind of liked that title. It was, and I just felt like I can do whatever. And, you know, the reaction to the record was more like not as good as Girlfriend. It's weird. It sounds weird. I didn't want to repeat what I'd just done. I wanted to do something that was really different. Um, we recorded it in Los Angeles. A lot of the same people played on it. Um, uh, Richard Dashett, the Fleetwood Mac producer, produced it um, with me, and I probably didn't let him do enough. You know, like looking back on that, we're we're great friends still, and I love him, and he was such a great person in my life. But <clears throat> if I could go back, I would listen and gain more from him. I think during the making of that record, I was pretty nose to the grindstone of kind of just not listening to much else but my head, you know, mm-hmm. and glad the record is like it is and i'm glad it's extreme and it's interesting because of that it's kind of artistic because of that um and people still the great thing was girlfriend was successful enough that you would you know it's uh altered beast still got played sort of and then like people still kind of bought a lot of them and stuff so it was like I remember one day I was at a gas station in New Jersey and somebody in a truck pulled up and they were blaring that song, Knowing People, off of Altered Beast. Like, I don't like knowing people or people knowing about me. It's like this kind of sarcastic song. And it just was so cool to me that, like, something like that got out into the world from me (laughs) or something. So that was a cool thing about that record. But it was also a tough time for me. I mean, when we made it, I never even went home and rested. I came straight off the road and went right into the studio into Los Angeles. And I never went back to New Jersey and, and my then girlfriend, now wife, Lisa, helped move, or had movers pack up our place in New Jersey and came to LA and I was still finishing the record there. So it was like I never went home after the tour. I went straight there to this kind of Denison city and um, just kind of explored you know all this all this stuff and but after that and when i went out and was touring for altered beast i had a lot more emotional problems from the amount of travel i started kind of having mini breakdowns i was having to fly all the time i had a really bad fear of flying 
<laughs> so it was almost like Altered Beast brought a dark time with it in my life, <laughs> as strange as that sort of sounds. And then that was when my manager said, okay, we won't fly at all for the next record, and that was 100% fun. And so I kind of got it together and made that record, and, and so luckily for me, it, it had a song that got noticed, you know? Right. Before we move on to that one, I just have one question to ask about Altered Beast, and that's about the you video for the for the Ugly Truth. There's so much cool stuff about that record, but there, go on. There is, and we'll probably circle back around to it when we when we get to some specific stuff. But the video for the Ugly Truth, I had read that that you own the '70 Challenger in that video. Is that true? Well, I don't own it now, but oh. I did own it. It was like my new toy. So, like, I was a fan of Japanese animation, so I wanted to put that in my video instead of me. <clears throat> I liked my Dodge Challenger. It was, like, my dream car. Well, my dream car had really been a Cuda, but this car showed up while we were in the studio that Dashit used to own. He and uh, someone else, I can't remember if it was somebody from the band or the crew, had, a like, a muscle car place real briefly <laughs> after their success. And it was one of the cars Dash had had, you know. <laughs> so my car became like the thing I wanted to put it in pictures or in my video, you know, instead of me. Um, so you can see that I'm only, you know, in things by duress. I sort of, they slide me in, you know. I'm not like dancing around wanting to be in videos. Mm-hmm. So is 100% Fun supposed but to be a start? Uh, video for Ugly Truth. So I just want to know video, if you stole the car. <laughs> That's... It, it was my car, and I owned okay. it for many years afterwards. Okay. And you shot the video, right? I did not shoot the video. It was shot oh. out in the desert. Um, and the guy directing it was named Sam Bear. And actually, oh. we'd gone through this whole treatment for it. And then when we shut up on set, he wasn't filming any of it. <laughs> and, like, I'd worked on it with Cameron Crowe, like, who was a friend of mine at the time. You know, we had it very specific. And so at the end of the first night of shooting, uh, everybody got together for a meeting, and we fired Sam Bear. So I ended up helping uh, this girl, Liz, edit the video into what it was supposed to be. But the basic thing was, like, whatever was in the trunk was the ugly truth. You know, it was kind of the the joke of the video or whatever. And that's like, at the end, when they open the trunk, it's like the cop is the head of A&R, Bud Scapa. And, you know, they're all people, like, from the label looking in, I think. Okay. Well, yeah, the, uh, just a layperson watching the video, I don't think we know who those people are necessarily. That, no, that's what I assume, mean. It's just yeah, a kind of a footnote. So is 100% Fun supposed to be an ironic sort of title compared to what you just described on Altered Beast? Yes. Okay. You know, uh, I... We were out on tour, and one day we were playing someplace, somewhere, I want to say maybe it was a soul asylum because it was a big place, and I don't think I would have been in that big a place. <laughs> and the news came that Kurt Cobain had killed himself. And, of course, one of the famous things from the note was, life just isn't 100% fun anymore. And I sort of thought, and I was never trying to make fun of that, but I thought, what a standard to hold life to, one hundred percent fun, you know, and it just such a pipe dream and such a strange thing to say to me. Just the idea that anyone could, it just kind of stuck in my head. 
And by the time <laughs> I used it, I would guess if you were to go back, I think I denied that it had anything to do with that. Because I didn't want anyone to think I'm like making fun of a suicide note or something, you know. But, the, but it did have a meaning to me because of that, sort of. So it was kind of like, you know, grit your teeth and smile. And, you know, it sort of like, you know, I love Ren and Stimpy. You know, it's kind of a, a, yes, a slightly sarcastic, dark sense of humor. And then I found, you know, this photo where I looked certainly as happy as I could imagine I ever had been. <laughs> and so, and it was with my King Kong album. And it's so hilarious because it's, you know, the uh, covered is uh, is the uh, Empire State Building and King Kong is hanging on it, and the album is positioned in a phallic position. <laughs> so it was a wacky, <laughs> weird picture. Nobody noticed that, but it's still great, you know. Wow, I never noticed that until you said that, and now I'm going to look at it right this second because I go look at it. I mean, it's not, you know, obviously it happened by accident, but it wasn't set up to be that way. But that's what I thought, sort of. I don't know. I was waiting for someone to say it. That's hilarious. Uh, ahead, I was Jay. always so distracted by the headphones. Those are fantastic. Yeah, they're big. Those headphones. Those are good headphones. So this this album is this the first one that you worked with Brendan O'Brien on? Uh, 100%. You mean? Yeah. Yeah, we did two records. So can you talk a little bit? About, I mean, Brendan O'Brien sort of ra- rose to prominence in the 90s with a lot of different bands. That's where I think he became sort of like, for most people, they don't know producers on records, unless it's like, you know, Quincy Jones or something like that. But Brendan O'Brien mm. became a name in the 90s for people who are into rock music. And I'm curious how you ended up working with him because that record doesn't necessarily sound in a lot of ways where I think of some of the other Brendan O'Brien records that he worked with, say, like Pearl yeah. Jam or something like that. Yeah. Well, Brendan, you know, was a, you know, he's a complete badass hot guitar player. Like, he can play anything off the top of his head. I mean, he is just an insanely musical person. <laughs> and he, uh, I think, played with the Georgia Satellites, and maybe produce some stuff with them, and that's how he got into engineering. I don't know if I know all his early history that well, but he was from Atlanta, Georgia, and that's where he did recording. And, you know, I went to school in Athens and knew a lot of people in, in Atlanta, and my manager, Russell, is in Atlanta and was in Atlanta then. And Russell knew Brendan a little bit. He'd done a couple things with him, and um, he always thought Brendan and I should hook up just because we both – loved weird old gear and we both just worked super fast and just he just thought we'd really get along <clears throat> and Brendan and did some sort of remix for something on Altered Beast and I was pleased that he seemed to have a good sense how to do it without having instruction you know <clears throat> and so we talked on the phone and uh, we just decided we'd, we'd work together and they worked it out and of course label Although my label was small, and I guess it probably was a nightmare for them money-wise, because I'm sure he got paid a lot, um, it still was a great, I mean, to a label that made them really happy that, you know, here's a guy associated with records that are selling humongous amounts. I went there, and, you know, he was totally cool. It's like they're, we're different kind of people. Like, every, you know, Pearl Jam and Brandon would play 
basketball at, out back of the studio and kind of do, they're more like guy guys. You know, for me, I'm more of a nerd, loner, slightly scared kind of person or whatever, especially then. <clears throat> and so it was, a, it was a, a combination where we each could sort of bring something. And what Brendan did is he encouraged me to be insane and turn up amps way too loud. And he also really knew a lot, so much about engineering and recording. You know, it was, he also, I learned a lot of, about that from him. <laughs> and uh, he also helped take pressure off me at that time. Because after Altered Beast, it's like we really need some a single or something. And I just couldn't think that way. So I would do more and more songs, but I just had no idea how to even think what would be a single. And <clears throat> Brendan said to me, you know, I think we just do something that we like and other people will like it too. And I thought that was such a good way to look at it. And it's really exactly what we did on Girlfriend. We did what we wanted to do, and because we liked it, some other people liked it too. So that's, I try to think that way. It was a good thing I kind of had reiterated by Brendan. <clears throat> and we made that record, and you know, a song that I'd written that we weren't even going to record, I ended up making a backing track with Rick one night when Brendan wasn't at the studio, and that was sick of myself. <clears throat> and uh, to his credit, I probably would have shelved it and made it into a demo later on. But he came in and he said, we got to record this song. Do you have any words for it? Do you have anything for it? And so it was like the next day we just finished it. You know, it came together very quickly. So even then we didn't think of it as it was going to be this big single or something. But that was the, the amazing lucky thing that happened because for me, the thing I thought that could never be is a single or so rarely be, is a single that also has emotional meaning in it. Usually, singles are more throwaway kind of songs. <clears throat> so to me, it was sort of like a triumph to get a song that talked about being sick of yourself. I mean, what a non-radio kind of concept, you know? Mm -hmm. So I do feel like in, in that way, it had its own kind of altered beast thing. It got a kind of song out there that is so unusual to have happened again, you know. So you wrote that. He, so if he asked you if you had lyrics, had did you write the music first, or and then sort of have a melody to go with it, and then apply lyrics well, afterwards, or do you start with lyrics for something like that? Especially back then, I would almost always start with music. Um, nowadays, I'm kind of doing both at all times. I'm I've 
I guess I've just done it so much, like phrases and words and things that catch in my head, I will tend to type them in some notes somewhere <clears throat> so that I have kind of this raw material. It's funny, I remember uh, <clears throat> when I first moved to Athens, you know, I'd met the guys in REM when they played in Lincoln. I had the Chronic Town EP. And uh, Michael had this little booklet, and he would go around with it, just like a diary, and he would sort of write words in it. And I remember I thought that was cool. Like, he thinks of a little thing, and he writes it down. But it took me about 20 years <laughs> to start doing it or something. Huh. But I digress. Guide me back. No, that's okay. Well, I'm just going to get into songwriting, I guess, as, as We're talking about general. songwriting, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so now I would do some of both, but probably... And then a lot of time I'm making up a melody and certain words also suggest themselves, so something will kind of come out of it. And probably back then, that's how it was. I'm sure I had sick of myself when I look at you or whatever, you know. It probably was just other stuff I was trying to fill in. Would you be writing... You mentioned that you came right off the road to into the studio for Altered Beast. Would you be writing stuff like during sound checks or, or on buses or on planes? or Not on planes, obviously. Um, or would you most- be all in the studio no most mostly um mostly i guess in when i was alone so in my hotel room i suppose if i wrote while i was on the road or you know at home if i had time off yeah i've never really done open songwriting on the road i don't think i ever started writing a song and then we played it live or something you know i it just was kind of a little bit longer gestation process for me i guess Gotcha. Um, also, we never had time to learn anything because I was always like an hour late for sound check from whatever, you know, in-store radio thing we had to do. Right. You mentioned some shows here and there. You know, when you think back uh, touring over the years, what are the what are the tours or even the shows that popped to your mind first? Mm, it's hard. There's, you know, anywhere where there's an audience that wants to hear your music, it's awesome. I mean, to mm. me... It's like the greatest thing now because I think it would be hard to just keep the flame if people, if you didn't have that feeling, you know. So, you know, I can remember shows where the most people were and stuff. It's hard for me to remember a favorite one because how I felt about it often had little to do with maybe how it really was, you know. Hmm. (laughs) Kind of like early in my career, if I would see someone after the show and they'd say, oh, it was great, I'd have to tell them why I was terrible, you know. (laughs) <laughs> and then after a few years, I learned, like, just don't say anything. Just keep your mouth shut and say thank you. And so I kind of, you know, learned to do that. Mm. But uh, how did I get on to this again? Guide me once more. Shows. <laughs> Favorite two Do I remember shows? shows? So, you know, like, there's one my family remembers. It was a Taste of Chicago <laughs> thing in the park on the lake, and it was like 100,000 people. And I headlined it, and the front of the newspaper was The Pope, The Bulls, and Matthew Sweet was the top. <laughs> so, you know, my my family loved that, especially the more distant of the Catholic side of, of the family, because, you know, the Pope and me, like, together in the same right, place. Right, right. Uh, so that was, like, maybe one of my biggest ones, but I've had cool experiences a lot of different places with a lot of different people. Kind of hard to hard to say the best. Any people are great all over the world, you know. Sure. Any particular, uh, you know, touring bands or 
acts that you've gone out with that you just had a great time with? Well, you know, it's always the best, been the best with Rick and Paul and I. And for a lot of years, they can, is that what you're asking? Or do you mean other bands like? Both, both, you know, lineups of the band and or. Um, yeah, I mean, Rick and Paul and I with anybody is great, I think, because just they're the ones I know the best. They're the, one that, they're the ones that probably know my music the best or just kind of come from the same place the most. We're all from the Midwest. We're all total power pop nerds, you know. Um, so they would be, yeah, as far as my core, core people, you know, I hope that we can die right on the same day or something. Hmm. Of old age, I mean. Of course. Right. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about, we touched on Altered Beast a little bit, about who plays on that record, because it's a pretty uh, interesting group of people, I'll put it that way. Who are who play on the record? Jody Stevens from Big Star, drumming. Oh, um, love, love, love the group. Nikki Hopkins, the keyboard player, legendary from people probably know from the Stones, most Gentlemen, likely. Yeah. Oh, um, so cool. Mick Fleetwood from a band that shares his name. A king from the modern age. <laughs> and Pete Thomas from the Attractions. Who, Another uh, just incredible guy and drummer so incredible. besides those people there's also carol k plays on in reverse <laughs> um, who's probably one of the most legendary bass players in rock history um, i learned from the carol k bass method so i didn't forget that i was only seen that i discovered she played on you know pet sounds so when you work with someone like that are you an all intimidated or in awe or, or just like I, do you have to pinch yourself that you're working with someone that whose records are, you know, an influence on you and have a legendary reputation? Kind of. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I'd gotten to meet Jody before. I'm sure that's why he was there. I think he sat in with us and played, I want to say don't lie to me or something like that. I was covering at an LA show. He was in town for probably for Arden <laughs> and he came and sat in with us on a show. So I'd met him then he's, you know, he's the total sweetheart of a guy. And so I probably said, Oh, I want you to come play on something on my record. And so we planned that in the case of, uh, Fleetwood, it was, uh, Dashett, you know, who knew him. I was just a huge, you know, Fleetwood Mac fan. And it was uh, Dashett who, who, you know, set up to get Mick to come and play. And he actually hung out with us a lot. We actually spent a few kind of all night longs hanging out and listening to stories from those two, which was just so amazing and great. And very, very funny comedy routines they kind of did back in the day. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> so that was amazing. And um, Pete Thomas I'd met. Before we made the record, when I was in England, I think just Ivan Julian and I went over for something promo, and uh, Ivan knew Pete from when uh, the Voidoids toured with uh, Elvis Costello. <laughs> so he called Pete, and Pete came to the BBC, and we recorded the song, Someone to Pull the Trigger, which it's actually the BBC version that we used on Altered Beast. 
here's an here's an example. Dashit, <laughs> what I was saying a little while ago. Dashit wanted to try a new version of someone to pull the trigger, but I was so attached to the version I'd done on England and then listened to 5,000 times that I was like, no, we just have to use this one, and we had to go through, you know, hoops to get the drum track out of the BBC and all the stuff. And like now, I think back and I thought, what would it have hurt to try another version of it? You know, there would have been right. two versions. Would have been cool, but you know, at at any rate, so. Uh, that that's how I know knew Pete Thomas and Pete ended up in LA and you know I said come over play some drums Rick came and played drums uh, now Nicky Hopkins was just I was a huge fan of his solo album The Tin Man Was a Dreamer you know that record no but I've been slowly like learn I just read um, a book I read two just Stone books Stones books this year by Bill Janovitz from Buffalo Tom. Um, uh-huh. there's one is like 50 tracks that define the stones and then his, um, album review of exile on main street for the 33 and a third series. And Nicky right, Hopkins right, is right. all over those books. So I've been going through listening to all the stone stuff, specifically listen to like keyboard stuff and horn stuff that he highlights. And then I, I've been wanting to check out a lot of the solo stuff from the people that worked on those records. So I haven't got to it yet. I- yeah, I think a thing that you should, you, I would request that you do is go find this album. <clears throat> I'm sure you can get the music from somewhere. Maybe it's on Spotify or on Beats or something. But it's uh, The Tin Man Was a Dreamer by Nicky Hopkins. It's a early 70s solo record. <laughs> and there's a song on it that's called The Dreamer. You listen to that song and you will know why I love Nicky Hopkins so much. What got me into Nicky Hopkins was this song. And to me, it's one of the great, I would almost call it a great power pop song or something. Even though it's not power pop, it's of the world of Brian and all the stuff we love, you know? Okay. And I heard him play piano on it, and it was beautiful, and I wanted some piano. So we found him, and he came over, and he was just so incredible. A wonderful, gentle guy really sweet, really funny, and uh, <clears throat> he was so musically talented. It was just, I had never seen anything like it. And, I mean, I'd seen Greg Elise, who is beyond, you know, in pure musicality world. <clears throat> but Nicky came in, and he listened to, he would listen to a demo of a song of mine that we wanted him to play on. And while he listened to it, he'd sit there, you know, his eyes closed, listen through, and then after we played it one time, he's like, okay. And he goes in the other room, gets on the piano, and he knows the entire thing, some incredible piano version, and never wrote down anything. He just knew the first time he played it. It's just crazy. Wow. So I got him and Greg doing stuff together, and we got some really nice stuff out of that with both of them there. And I somewhere, and I actually probably kind of know where they are. I have DAT recordings uh, running live in the studio with Nikki and Greg jamming. And there were a load of, I would meow in the microphone, and then Nikki would do dog, he would do barking. And we'd meow and bark and meow and bark and laugh, you know. And I still have. I'm not sure where it is right now, but I know my wife had it. This little Dixie cup that Nikki drew a dog face on, 
and made the ears out of the little handle on it that I kind of remember him by because he was so sweet. He had bad liver problems from a, from some kind of a botched operation, I think. And he didn't live, I mean, he lived quite a while after that, I think, but not, not, I mean, he's been gone for a while, I think. Yeah. Just couldn't say more. I loved him, but he did have sour grapes about the stones. He just, only because they wouldn't let him have some credit on, is it We Love You or that's the name of the song? There's a Stone song that he's famous for, people know that he's really involved in. <clears throat> I think it's called We Love You or something like that. And he would, you know, he's like, he would imitate Nick. He's like, you know, it's just a fucking bridge, Nicky, you know. So he was just mad they wouldn't give him this little slice of stuff. But, I mean, it wasn't like he went on about it all the time, but you could just tell he was he was sort of pissed, which is a drag, you know. Is it a loving cup, waiting on a friend? Maybe. But on this particular song, I'm thinking of he, he wrote the bridge was his claim. Hmm. Because he was saying, they said, well, it's just a bridge. You shouldn't get any song credit. And he's like, but it's the bridge. Give me right. 25 or whatever, you know. Right, right. Yeah, at least like so, 10%. 10% of the credit. Who knows what was behind all that. It was a wild time. <laughs> I'm old and it's long before my time. Yeah, I know you guys must be kind of old because of when you were teenagers. Well, yeah, we're we're both at the 40 mark, so. Yeah, just crack. Well, it's pretty much over, guys. <laughs> well all right then yeah i've always i've always tried to think ahead i felt like it was over for me at about 32 mm. <laughs> i felt like i was 50 from about 45 on well it's it also speeds you up when you start having kids and they start to suck the energy out of you to the point where yeah. you're just like hey it's even- 10 o'clock i gotta go to bed yeah, we tried really hard to have kids, but it didn't work out, and we finally decided we would repair our own relationship rather than keep doing <laughs> IVF. And that's been fine, but I think it is something to watch the kids, you know, having to be parents. And being in Nebraska, we have a lot of family here, and we just kind of didn't have any, you know, out where we've lived for the last 20 years. So it, it's pretty crazy to see, you know, what it means to be a parent, you know. Well, just to give you an insight, um, I, I normally we put our two-year-old to bed at, at seven o'clock, and of course, Murphy's Law, tonight she would not go to bed until 8.50. So for an hour and 50 minutes, she was screaming and fighting, and I'm like trying to calm her down, and then my wife's trying to calm her. We're tag-teaming in and out of the room trying to get her to calm down, and I'm like, I got this interview coming up. Can we... Please, I'm trying to rationalize with a two-year-old to please go to bed. I've got to talk to Matthew Sweet tonight, please. And she had not; she had nothing to do with it. So she wasn't impressed. She was not impressed at all. Oh no! Well, I'm sorry to hear. I'm sorry to tell you that that she. Sorry uh, to hear my point exactly. Yeah, I mean, I just can't. I mean, it just. But again, to have that, you know, would be the most valuable thing in the world because. What do we have, you know? <clears throat> I mean, at least you'll have kids. That's true. Although, it, it's moment. one. One and done. We'll have done. kids. 
Oh, yeah. I guess it's bad, you know, because if the one doesn't like you, you know. <laughs> yeah, there, there is that. I'm, yeah. I think of it a lot in terms of that no one will care for me at the very end. That's why I'm here meeting all my nieces and nephews and watching them have kids so that I can get to know them. <laughs> that, that is a of, concern. One of them will even yet, soup. I'm not. We, we've done two uh, interviews recently that um, the yeah. band's reunions are due to um, kids. Both Veruca Assault and Failure both credit to some degree. They're getting the band back together and uh, their kids, you know, meeting each other and playing. Oh, I see what you're saying. The grown yeah. kids are hooked up. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. That's yeah. awesome. For a minute, I thought, times are so hard with the kids. They got to get the band back together. Oh, <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> their kids were friends, and then they found themselves, you know, all of a sudden talking because they were on play dates together or at the park together or what have you. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's how it, I mean, and that's what you see now. I and mean, it's very different. I meet kids and sometimes I do interviews with people that are, you know, in their twenties or whatever. And their parent, they grew up with their parent and they like love the music the parent turned them on to. And it's like, that's just so different than, you know, your parents just did not like cool music if you're my age. You know? right. It was right. most impossible, you know, <laughs> unless it was really, you had some fringy parent that was super hip, you know. So uh, it's kind of a cool thing to see how the modern world, I think, facilitates kids kind of learning about the music from every source. Yeah, it almost uh, scares me to um, try to play music for my daughter, just knowing that she's going to rebel just because kids rebel. Yeah, so I'm like, sure. if I wanted her to like the music I like, should I not expose her to it and let her discover it? How, how do you do this? I don't know. What's the right way to make this work? Yeah, that, well, <laughs> they go through stages, I guess. So it just depends, like, how she socializes. If she really socializes mainstream, then, you know, you'll hear all the terrible Top 40 hits. Oh, but, yeah. you know, Miley has a really good one. Yeah. Yeah, we... uh there's yeah you, we hear I hear all that's how I know pop music. Katy Perry, Haley, that's all you need. Yep, for a young girl. Not to derail this conversation here, but if we could, uh, if I if I could throw out a, a music question, um, that's I'm up for it. Okay. In between, 100% fun and Blue Sky and Mars, there was a pretty important thing that happened in the United States, and that was the Telecommunications Act of uh, 1996 and i'm not going to go in this a weird political <laughs> rant here but oh, no no go on yeah show me there in, is... remind me so this me. is where congress decided that companies like clear channel could go and buy every radio station and consolidate and so the, the united of radio kind of right and you the playlists start to shrink and i yeah. i remember this very clearly in the 90s it seemed like between 90 96, there is a dividing line between the first half of the decade and the second half of the decade where music really shifted in terms of what was on the radio. You used to have a wildly eclectic amount of music on alternative radio stations. They didn't really have a set format. It was just whatever was coming out of the studio, out of the labels was getting played. And then with that consolidation, it seemed like it got squeezed. And I'm curious if you felt that in Absolutely. terms of... Okay. 
absolutely everybody felt it. You know, Clear Channel really very quickly became sort of resented. I mean, like, even beyond myself, you'd meet people and they'd be like, Clear Channel has ruined music or whatever, you know. Um, but, of course, doing so many radio things, I did experience that. And, you know, we started going to places like Clear Channel in addition to going to radio stations <laughs> to try to get the Clear Channel place to put, get you allowed on a list somewhere, you know. <laughs> and then things just shifted really dramatically. And before you knew it, it was like the main genre of music in America was like Limp Biscuit music, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. whatever that genre was, it seemed like that was the big thing for the end of the 90s or something. Maybe I remember the time incorrectly, but... No, you're it right. Did, it was like alternative radio got so commercial that it wasn't alternative anymore, kind of. Well, it seemed like the there was... Well, first of all, Limp Biscuit was a band that was... They literally paid radio stations to play them, that their record label paid money and it was legal then based on what was what transpired that they could it was a promotional budget that was essentially is how they deemed it they were playing for promotion the record the record being played wasn't actually being played by choice it was being promoted so that's how they they got away with that but it seemed like the the angst that was associated with the with the grunge and, and alternative movement in the 90s turned into rage which yeah. and not rage against the machine, but these you know Limp Bizkit and Corn and Thought the new great. metal right. rap rock, and it seemed to become a much less nuanced anger and a much more I don't know what you'd say um, base. It was much more base in its intentions. You know, it went from uh-huh. Pearl Jam expressing you know for it, whatever. It was more like angry. It might you know angry thirteen year old exactly. metal fans or something. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. That, then they made him the head of a record company, you know? I mean, it's like, isn't it that wasn't the guy from Limp Bizkit or one of those groups? Yeah, I think Fred Durst was... Yeah, they put him in charge of some major... <laughs> major <laughs> but, yeah. uh... That was yeah. a dark chapter. It's a very it dark chapter. Dark. But it led to my favorite record of yours, which is In Reverse. And ah. I'm really curious about this record, obviously because it's a wildly ambitious record in terms of your production that you put into it i mean the list of players the amount of instruments that are instrumentation on the record the uh, my my wife when i told her i was going to be interviewing you she said make sure you tell him that my favorite song is thunderstorm because oh that's i love that she's a music teacher she appreciates really complex you know music that is in a pop format oh that's cool that was that was a lot of fun
curious um, how you made the record if you're not someone who's can read and write music because that seems like the type of album that would necessitate that let's think now did somebody write out the music hmm it is a good question although it wasn't like the songs were very hard um, well, I certainly didn't. I mean, we may have just had chord charts, you know. I'm not 100% sure how we did that. Somebody would know. Fred would probably know. Um, Jim Scott was really integral in that whole thing, understanding how to record a large group like that. I had gotten into Phil Spector. You know, I'd been into Brian and stuff, but... I never really listened much to Spectre stuff, and I started listening to it and really digging, you know, the sound of it. And so I learned if you do five pianos and three drummers and just more of everything, it kind of gets that sound, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'd, I'd made a couple demos that were like that, and again, I think Russell kind of encouraged me, like, you have to record some of that Spectre-type stuff. And so I was like, great, and... It took a long time to get in the studio to make that record because the the label was sold to what was Britney Spears' label, uh, Jive. Okay. And they put these two guys in charge who were Metallica's managers, and it was their names Cliff and Peter. I'm spacing their last names. <laughs> they probably still manage them, and uh, they wouldn't let me leave, and get a deal somewhere else, but they wouldn't say make a record. So I was just kind of in limbo. <laughs> and eventually uh, we got them to accept this sort of weird super group of people idea. But then once the record came out, they wouldn't, like one of the things I remember best in the universe, not making the record, but afterwards was we got um, asked to go on Conan, which I'd done many times. And uh, they wouldn't pay for us to go to New York with the band and do it. I mean, these guys running Volcano under Jive. So their main thing was to get the group Tool. And since they were Metallica, they might know what to do with Tool. And they did have quite a bit of success with them, I think, even after that. But I suppose, you know, the Limp Bizkit era was probably good for Tool. Oh, I, I always thought of Tool as being much headier. And maybe some there was some crossover, but Tool is, I think, of much more in like a progressive rock, uh, you know, seventies progressive rock sound yeah. with a little bit of anger uh, undercutting some of the yeah. earlier stuff. But um, it's I'm more that seems. I don't need to compare them really artistically, no. other than I just would imagine a Tool survived that era better than a Matthew Sweet did, you know, <laughs> right? Radio wise or whatever. Teen fan-wise, young male fan-wise based. Anyway, I always liked those guys until they were really nice. Uh, the singer was really nice. I used to see him all the time at parties at the label head's house when we were on Zoo Entertainment. Maynard. Yes. He was cool. They made that amazing video with all the, the weird animation of creepy heads and stuff. Uh, yeah, <laughs> That the, the the '90s were the best for like creepy, weird videos. Every like Nine now Inch and then, Nails I think I lost. Tool and, well, like Nine Inch Nails and Tool, and all those bands made like really bizarre and creepy videos that like you don't see that anymore. I maybe it's because of budgets, but yeah, I mean the world is so different. The internet is just 
you know, we're barely beginning to see how much everything's changed, I think. And it's amazing what the Internet is, but it also sets our time apart. I like that I came from before the Internet because I feel like it was still in a really cool time kind of in, in rock and roll that was so, we now realize was so special. You know, I mean, at the time it seemed like when I started playing bass, which would have been in the, you know, let's see, I'm born 64, so, you know, around the mid 70s, it, you know, rock history seemed impossibly long before that. The idea that all the greatness didn't already happen or something was just, I, I couldn't conceive of, you know. So to look back now, it makes me realize how close we all were to when it started compared to where we thought we were, you know. Is there an aspect of, I guess that, I, I, one of the things that Jay and I talk about that we miss about the pre-internet is that there was an era, there was an era of bands that you didn't know a lot about them until they came yeah. to your town. Yes. Mystique. Mystique is the word. Yeah, and that was such a cool thing, trying to find out a little, I mean, just if you could get a record at all, it was great, you know, let alone picture or an article about somebody, and that did make it just such a different thing. But also, you just, you know, you had to have something to do alone in a room that didn't connect to the entire world, <laughs> and you'd play records. I mean, it, for me, like, I'd get home, and... I'd go in my room and put on a record, and that's how, you know, I wasn't, like, living at home with my parents or whatever, you know? It's probably why we don't voice. have uh, rock bands in the same way, because it's become background music to playing video games, or it's yeah, what it's you do when you're surfing cool, the web. Yeah, it's music on commercials or whatever, you know? So, yeah, it doesn't have the same thing, and there's so, so, so much more of it. And I think now, just... The amount of style and stylization of just every music genre and everything, there's just loads of it everywhere. But it's hard to find the weak little human voice in it, kind of, you know? It's mm -hmm. like become very spread out. But I suppose there'll be all kinds of movements in music, but just how, how concentrated could they ever be again, really? Because now everything's specialized and will be fractured for the world, you know? There's no longer a curator to funnel all unless of it through to. Until someone pays it, unless someone pays enough money to force the world to all like one thing, you know? Right. Well, there's a curator, it's called YouTube, or it's called, you know, Spotify, or what have you, and whatever they're pushing at that moment, that's where people are. It's not rock magazines anymore, or rock radio, yeah. it's these giant you know, open-ended platforms where anything goes and... Yes. And freak things have a lot of, you know, there's more one-hit wonders probably than ever before, <laughs> I would imagine, just from things that just are novel, you know? So you have a lot of interests, in t speaking of people who, who have a lot of time to do other things, you have a lot of interests outside of music, whether it's collecting art or, or making art. As you've gotten older and been able to i guess you know do this more I, i'm assuming that you weren't able to like make art while you were touring in the in the 90s I, I don't know if that's true or not but i assume that 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 was the music was your primary focus at that time is that safe to say 
I think it is. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I more had time for, you know, if I was home for a few weeks, we'd go, you know, thrifting into, you know, the Rose Bowl and all these different kind of big flea markets and stuff, you know? So yeah, a lot of easier to do a little bit of art collecting when you don't have a lot of time than to actually create art, <laughs> I think. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that it became easier for me later on. I think partly I wanted to understand music better. I felt like I always felt like there's this thing about music where it was just so, it was just so mysteriously I couldn't understand where it came from, and also it was too easy and didn't really like take any time. Like if I make up a song, it's really fast, and so I always kind of felt like I'm not doing as much, you know, people think I'm like a craftsman and all this stuff, but I'm not, it just kind of comes out that way, you know? <clears throat> and I think in trying other kinds of things for art, I was looking to see another viewpoint of looking at it or something. And when I learned to make pottery, it was a similar thing in that the moment, I'd always had this thing where like, I would listen back to a finished song. There'd always be some moment where it's like, I would go, how did it get from nothing to being this. And I just really couldn't even remember it exactly. And when I started making pottery, I noticed that you, know, you make a pot and you have to go through a lot of stages and <clears throat> finally you glaze fire and it's finished. And I found that like I'd do that and then a week later, I might be walking through and I'd see something that I made and I'd just go, how did I make that? And I realized it was a very similar place of kind of nothingness that you have to go creatively when you're on a wheel, like all odds are that you will fail. It's going to fall down and you're just trying to keep that from happening sort of. So whenever something really cool happens, it's because you just forget totally to be afraid. You forget where you are in the moment and you're just kind of in this almost dream state. You know, um, it's a Zen kind of thing if you studied Zen Buddhism or something. And that helps me. It helped me see music in a different way, sort of, and just feel my life kind of in a different way. And it was satisfying. You know, I, I like doing things that have an element of, and music, even though it has this, I guess with the recording and the engineering and everything, there's something about really mundane work, like, you know, washing the dishes or, um, you know, cleaning or doing something where it, you can get in that state where you just kind of lose your mind. And in Zen, they call that doing the things. I think they'll say, you know, if you're going to be have a healthy mind, you have to get up in the morning and do the things. And by that, they mean you take a shower, you have breakfast, you know, and, and you'll find meaning through going through motions and stuff. And, and uh, so I think there's something about the process of pottery that I really like that's a little more like if you were doing carpentry or something. And I think music has some of that, but when I really lose myself in it is when I'm making stuff up or when I'm playing live. And the rest of the time I'm more adding off the cuff what I hear sort of, you know. Hmm. Does any of that make any sense? Probably not. <laughs> what do you want? No, it does. What do you want? I'm an artist. <laughs> my own head is there do you think there's a sense of uh you know the, some of those things you mentioned is there a sense of like um gratification that there's a finality to it like you 
like when you wash dishes, you do mundane things like that. There's a beginning and an end, and you know when you're done. Yes, and I think particularly in pottery, it was something that kind of jazzed me about it was that that moment was captured in a tangible way where you could touch it. Yeah. Music felt like magic or something because it, it's in the air. It's just so different from a solid uh-huh. object. But the place it comes from, I don't think, is too different. And so for me, I really felt like the two things illuminate each other. And for me, it's helped me understand a little more, I think, in general, what it is to try to be an artist. You know, and I said, oh, I'm an artist in my own head. But it's funny, after I said that, I thought that that's really true because no one's an artist who isn't an artist in their own head because no one else is going to, like, want you to be an artist, you know, (laughs) of any kind. You have to be driven to that. And when people ask me about my career, I'll just say, you know what, I loved doing music, and that was my main thing. And I just try to keep that thought whenever I, you know, feel whatever way I can always go back to music and it's like it's just a thing that I like to do and no amount of wanting to make it or craving fame or success or those kind of things will ever keep you a musician if you don't really love music it's not for the faint of heart any any of your podcasts I'm sure can tell you that oh absolutely that's the thing that I think is is the universal is that and it's it's weird because I think that there is a balance between you have to want it, but it can't be a desperation because yeah. a lot of people are desperate to be musicians and a lot of people are desperate to be artists, but that people can who you want to work with if you put off the wrong vibe, they don't want to work with someone who's desperate. They want to work with someone because that lacks confidence, I think. Yeah, and, that, yeah, and sure. that's the thing that overwhelmingly people is that they have confidence confidence in their own ability to make art, and that's probably why Jay and I do a podcast, and we're not, and our <laughs> band was not successful. <laughs> when you're desperate, when you're desperate, you're less likely to, no, to I mean, but, stick to I who you of, are. But yeah. what if you're in a band? What if you're in a band right now and you're a kid? I mean, talk about desperate. I mean, what are the chances? How will you break through? You know, I mean, it's not even. I mean, no. someone like me would never come out now because I didn't even want to perform. I just wanted to record, you know? I never would have... Yeah. This would have been some tiny unknown thing on the internet or whatever, you know? I, I um, think but, that there's opportunities if you're willing to explore them. I think you have to be much more open to, like, social media and interaction and those sorts of things. And, you know, there was a weird time from, like, say, 2000 to whatever, or maybe 99, 98, somewhere there where there it was the internet existed, but not really in a way that you could like listen to music in a, in a really strong way. You know, it yeah. was the, the bit rate wasn't there. And then yeah. somewhere in the two thousands music over the internet made sense. I feel bad for the bands like us that existed in that time period because you didn't have the internet the way it is now. And you didn't have the sort of, way it existed in the 90s and 80s and 70s in terms of pre-internet so it was this weird nether region that existed that kind of was in flux and it made i don't know made promoting bands a lot weirder than it is now now i i would love to be actually in my 20s and in a band because i feel like social media and you know, get, get, yeah 
YouTube, you can make a video, you can make it go, you can try to make it go viral. You can use Instagram, you can use, uh, what's the video one, uh, Vine. I mean, there's so many opportunities to, but then that's the whole thing of where's the mystique. Yeah. And it's also a total opportunity for that kind of, uh, desperation. Like I've seen bands that are working all that stuff so hard, but it just isn't cool. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I've had mean bands or whatever where it's just like, you know, you just wouldn't have done that in the back then, you know? Yep. You become a, instead of being a band, you become a marketing, you know. It was more of an outcast kind of thing to do to be in bands and stuff. I mean, everybody's parents brought them up having bands now or whatever, you know? Yeah, right. Yeah, now it's the thing is like your kid, you know, is in a band when he's 12 and you put it up on YouTube for all your... 40 year old friends exactly. to see that yeah. really is a thing and it has been for many years <laughs> mm. so that's a thing that's just kind of like it's also taken away its importance in terms of setting yourself apart from the world by what you listen to kind of you know there's just so yeah. many other facts now well we have gone on uh much longer than i anticipated <laughs> So, um, I'm I did, so sorry because you have to wait. No, 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 it's no. it's okay. I did want to wrap up with a with a certain question. Though. Okay, um, this is one of those looking back questions sort of thing. When you look over your career, looking at all the albums and all the songs, is there any particular song or or album, but more so song, where you think I did? I did it exactly the way I wanted it to in terms of I hit everything. You know, some songs you might be like, I don't really like the drums on that one particular song or I don't like the, you know, the way I phrase that vocal. Is there any particular song, yeah. especially in terms of like, I would want somebody to hear this song and they would understand what I want out of a song that I've written? Uh, I just think that's hard because I want too many different things. And like, I feel like if when there are songs that are like, you know, a melancholy song that I would love that would really represent myself, but there also have to be melodic, janglier things, and there also, I want to do rock things. You know, it's just hard for me. You know, if I listen to a record of mine, I would ha- I might have general feeling of, Ugh, I can't stand myself, but I probably wouldn't go, oh, I hate the way those drums sound, or I want that, because I never, I've always been more of a big-picture person i want to get to that bigger picture as quick as i can you know i'm really not very hung up on little things um uh what where am i going with this what did you ask me again <laughs> well i was gonna if there's one song that oh, one, okay if, or if yeah. one song so it's, so it's hard if it was a radio yeah. single i'd say sick of myself because someone out there that understands that too much of yourself is horrible or that looking at someone who has something pure and you feel like you aren't that way anymore. You know what I mean? The the idea that you could feel feelings out of a single, that to me felt like something. But my actual feeling about all my stuff is really just, I don't even know what it would be that would be the peak for me. You know, none none of it's good enough, really. It's all just trying, you know, and... The older I get, the more it's just hard for me to, you know, feel any kind of importance about myself or really, in a way, anything. Because, you know, just if you look at 
the universe around us, which we can do now. It's just, we're just a tiny nothing, you know what I mean? So it's hard. I don't, I don't champion, I love my music, but I love them like children who might have disabilities and all those things. You know what I mean? I don't like the one that came out perfect, if that makes sense. Yeah. Although you, mean, you just, you I just, just don't even know whatever out perfect. Perfect probably would be bad, you know. Yeah. Everything now is perfect, and it's just so head hurting. Yeah. Jay, I love say? That's why listening to old records is great. It's because everybody's like loose and really plain, you know. Makes oh. such a difference. Yeah, it really perform- does. Performances. I mean, I that's what I, I learned doing those records with Susanna Hoff. It's we did all these covers, and it's like. Every time there were major hits that were, they would never pass the muster now. Like they would have thrown out the take that is the giant hit because it's not perfect or whatever. But it mattered more the spirit of the thing and the feeling of the person then, you know. And now it's a little bit more as much about impact and kind of showbiz, you know, that kind of a, almost a legacy type thing, all the biggest acts, you know. There's not an REM type group that's like, you know, one of the big acts. Oh no, absolutely not. I mean, we can't. Yeah. I, Tim and I have talked in the past, like, you know, we can't even have a an Elton John or a Billy Joel. Like those artists yeah. can't even exist anymore. Like where it's incredibly talented pop songwriters that you know yeah. have you know di- weird images or maybe aren't you know you know um, sex symbols. Like that, that can't exist anymore. Yeah, that's kind of weird because it was such a big part of, you know, new wave and alt rock and all that is kind of that you can like all kinds of things, you know, mm-hmm. and that's what made that a special era. And I think you're really I love how you delineated it by the act in 96, because it is exactly like itself that after 96, the promise of what alternative was supposed to be kind of got stopped. It did. It did. I don't, yeah. think, it's, I don't, it's I don't think it's fun, but it lived in triple in A radio. You know, they're, they're the closest thing to that now. Well, and it probably for, you know, a lot of people, the radio is irrelevant. People are turning into like satellite radio and yeah. they're able to such, have such a streamlined and specific, channel that they're listening to you know if they want to listen to something that's new they're going to they have really two options you're either going to go with the pop station or you're going to go with like the college radio station and uh, yeah i i haven't seen the numbers but i can't imagine that the majority of audiences are listening to sirius xmu and listening to the college stuff and the and the indian underground things if anything they're probably listening to all the you know the 90s channel the 80s channel the stuff that they're familiar uh, with which, yeah, or they have group channels where it's all the things like that artist or whatever, you know. So, right, yeah, definitely, it, it's it's a, a very different thing. Radio, you know, it isn't. It, the funny thing is, I didn't, you know, I, I liked the radio when I was about twelve, you know, ten to twelve or thirteen, when it had when it was album oriented rock and you'd hear all kinds of different kind of, you know, old rock stuff. But after that, I never cared about the radio in my adult life. You know, I ne- I couldn't believe it mattered so much when I had success. You know, <laughs> I just had never realized how much that was what ruled everything. You know, 
um, just because I'd never done a whole lot of like, I hear the record on the radio and then I go buy it. Not a whole lot of that. A couple times. But usually it was something I found out from someone cool, you know, who was two years older than me or somebody at the record store. Exactly. I think it probably mattered in the 90s so much because college radio had a bigger crossover, I think, in the 90s with mainstream charts than any other time period. Yeah, uh, you know, for sure. And, it, you know, we would get, when we were at college radio, we would get the CMJ book and see what was in there. And within a month, it was duplicated on, we were at Bowling Green, which is in Northwest Ohio, the Toledo radio station 20 minutes away would basically be playing the exact same music within a month. So yeah, there was, there's not much, there wasn't much differentiation between the alternative of mainstream America for five or six years and yeah. what supposedly the kids were listening to in college. Then it sort of, you know, by the time when the late nineties came around, we were still playing soul coughing and all these other bands and they had moved on to, they had shortened their playlist down and forgotten about those bands. I also think that yeah. the nineties, they also pigeonholed themselves to death in a lot of ways, you know, they started, it started with Lollapalooza and these inclusive tours with like lots of different bands. And then it sort of started breaking off into Lilith fair and all the female artists go and do Lilith fair. And then you had Ozfest, and all the heavy bands did Ozfest, And it's like, they intentionally started these demarcation lines between like, if you like metal, you have to go, you go to a metal festival and Lollapalooza yeah. wasn't, didn't exist at the end of the nineties because of that. Yeah. Just, you know, the passage of time, what can you do? I mean, and that's those big tours, you know, it's a lot about money as well. Right. You know, just trying to figure out the way to maximize getting people to go out and buy a ticket, I suppose, you know. That's a, that's, that's a problem for the ticket takers, not us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to be funny, but I'm not that funny. Well, I've been around so many funny people, like comedians and people, they never laugh if I try to be funny. Never. So oh yeah, that's right. Laughs, so they're being polite. I know you're being polite when you laugh. No, no, not a. Uh, I had in my notes. You mentioned funny. Uh, Fred Armisen played on your last record, oh, right? From yeah, he sent me some drum tracks, and I just grafted that song onto the top of this that track, which is sort of like a weird kind of big band jazz drums or something. had the song and I just sort of grafted it on we um, Suzanne and I met him we went to visit the set of Mad Men because we she knew the guy who created it and I met him at a party of hers and we were like oh we really want to go see the set and so he invited us to go there eventually and while we were there I saw Fred Armisen and I blurted out it's Fred Armisen 
and then he heard us. So then we kind of went over and talked to him. And then, you know, he's a big music head and is super wants to, you know, talk to musicians and stuff. So he was really nice. And we ended up going and performing at some of these Fred Artisan and Friends things in Los Angeles with him. So that, you know, I, I was seeing him, you know, every now and then, and we would text now and then. And, and I just said, send me some drums because I'm making a record and I'll try and do something with him. And that was, he sent me three, he just went somewhere and recorded just the whole kit into like a stereo mic or something. And so it, it's real basic uh, of a recording, but it was cool, cool that he did it. Uh, any cameos coming up on Portlandia, perhaps? <laughs> no, you know, I know there's a lot of musician people on that, but I've never been asked, but I also do not desire to really be on TV shows, but... If they asked me, I would go because Fred's, you know, always been really nice to me, and I think he's really funny. So I would do it if they asked. <laughs> well, we'll we'll send that I'd out be, to, I'd, uh, to I'd Fred. Bad at acting, but I'd be bad at acting, and it wouldn't be funny. I did a thing not too long ago for comedy uh, Bang Bang. You know what? Oh that yeah, and I have seen. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I was on an episode of it, and I, I was supposed to say some lines. And I just was so terrible at it in the big room of people trying to film it. <laughs> it was just like, I just can't do this. Thank God I didn't try to be an actor or something. Has that episode aired? Because I've seen a couple episodes, but I have not seen I that think one. It aired. It would have been in the last. I, I don't know if it's still on the air or not. Yeah, um, it is. Yeah. Then it, it probably is the season before last. Okay. Something happens, and for some reason, we're in the band. And they go back to the, it's like Reggie is in the band. So it's like supposed to be earlier. I can't remember why they do it, but it's like my band and Reggie jamming on weird, just repetitive things, kind of doing the ins and outs of things during it. And then we, there was this little part where I actually didn't watch it. I tend to not watch myself in things because I don't really enjoy it. <laughs> but you could check it out. There's probably something of it left in there. That I'll be going to uh, the IFC website as soon as we get off <laughs> to go see what that <laughs> is. It can't be that hard to find. No, I would imagine not. I can pretty much just Google Comedy Bang Bang Matthew Sweet, and I'm pretty sure it'll you come up. You know that I was on the Drew Carey show? What? In a similar situation, being ter- terrible. You know, the funny thing, actually... <laughs> Maybe this is where I really got the idea. So they invite me to be on the Drew Carey show. Somebody's having a band and they're trying people out. And one of them is like Joe Walsh. And one of them uh, was the, you know, you see your still for school's ads with the glasses. Uh, uh, girl singer with Ethan Hawke boyfriend. Lisa uh, you know, Lowe? Yes. She did one of them, you know, and it's just, you're not supposed to be you, but you're sort of trying out and it's supposed to be funny or whatever. So we film mine, and I'm doing my line, and the whole crew and everyone laughs their asses off. Like, it, I can't believe it. They laughed, you know, at how I deliver it. Drew Carey literally came up to me after that take, and he got right up in my ear, and he said, don't be funny. Don't be funny. That's what he told me. Yeesh. And literally I couldn't do it the way I did because he's standing there and I'm like, oh my God, he's like pissed or something. So I don't even know what that turned out like, but what a moment. Don't be funny. Why did he do that? 
<laughs> yeah. I don't know. Some people are, I don't know, they have a, an angry side. The comedy huh. is a very dark, comedy is a dark business. It might be the only one, it's a step darker than music in a way, you know. It's like deep issues are behind it. A lot of troubled folks. I'm sure you'd find out if you listen to only podcasts of comedians or something. They probably have amazing yeah. stories. Yeah. Most have, yeah, troubled pasts. Or that was depressing, childhood. though. I mean, how would you feel? It, I felt terrible, of course. It was like, okay, well, I guess I'll just try to be really plain or something. So are you going to let us in on some secrets about Austin Powers then? About the, dark, about the darkness behind that? Um, well, it wasn't a very dark time because it was a fresh thing for Mike. So he was getting on from Wayne's World and he was working out a new character. So that the first one especially was really fun. I mean, really, both of them were pretty easy. And when I worked on those things and when we had to film and stuff, I just knew everybody a lot better than going and being a one-off on a TV show or something, you know. So we'd been hanging out and we jammed together and stuff. So we kind of knew each other. So maybe it wasn't, that wasn't, it certainly wasn't a dark experience, but you know, Mike is certainly as complex a dude as anybody, you know, he has his uh, dark side, which you don't think it, part of it is I think you think comedians kind of won't have that and you meet them and they're sort of serious and you're like, Whoa, they're like serious. Mm. I, for some reason, I make friends with tons of comedians, and I know that they are big sufferers. I just can tell. Huh. Some, that's a nice way of putting it, and sometimes it's probably true. Well. Matthew Sweet on Comedians. Thank you. Guys. Matthew Sweet on Comedians. <laughs> that's a podcast. That'll be, that'll be in the... Yeah, that is a whole podcast. We could just do that. It'd be very dark. <laughs> dark, dark. Um, I've never seen Armisen be dark. But there's got to be something going on there. Yeah, yeah. There's <laughs> got to keep probably on the, that. If he's on the set of Portlandia, he's probably a nightmare. That I would be the podcast. You would be finding all the dark spots in every comedian's life. I only wish you would hear me say that, but he probably won't. He's moved on to other musicians now. Now, is he still doing the TV show? That was another crazy thing. He's like the band leader on TV. Um. Yeah, he's... Seth Meyers band leader, right? I just don't understand that why he wants to be, but that's funny. It's good. <laughs> well, now we're talking about comedy. Anything else you need? Uh, let's see. Sports. You got any comedy sports interest we yeah. discuss? Or how how the Huskers going to do this year? I have no idea. I, uh, I'm just kidding. Um, no, we should wrap. Be up. Rude. We're hitting the two hour mark at this point. So okay. Why? Well, I'm just falling asleep. Well. It sounded about halfway through like I'd lose my voice entirely, so at least it kind of kept going. Well, we appreciate you plowing through, and it's incredibly generous of you to give up two hours of oh, your Oh, when you're an old guy and, and comes along and wants to hear your story, <laughs> you're happy to tell it. And, and um, we, we recently got an Onion AV review that was basically saying our show's best when we just let the guest talk. So that's that's oh, all we're doing. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. We had Rufus hold on, and they were just like, just let Louise talk. For the meanest reviews about girlfriend, just you have to just not not look. Uh, we were having your eyes. Have him talk talk about us. That's, yeah, exactly. All press is good fine. press as long as you don't have to see it. Yep. Yourself, exactly. I mean, 
Well, so we can expect a new record sometime this spring, you're thinking? Yeah, I think it's probably more likely to be actually coming out beyond Kickstarter people in more like September. Okay. If I had Do you have a, a working title? Um, I don't yet. I have a couple of possible working titles that I can't say. Not Are yet. You? And you're not allowed to? Okay. Titled project number 888. All right. Well, we're going to hold you to that. Eight's my lucky number. That's why I'm saying that. It's never been lucky for me, but I call it my lucky number. Well, we'll be looking forward to that. Uh, Jay and I are, I don't know. I I don't know if there's been an artist who has, in terms of a career as interesting and long and so many stories. I mean, we probably could have talked for another two hours, but this was really just a treat for us. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. Well, thanks. it's my pleasure. Thank you guys for caring about it and knowing about it. Cause you know, that's how anyone will know is just, you know, cause people remember, okay, now everything from now will be remembered because of the internet, but let's forget about that. Right. The people that keep it alive. So thank you again. And, um, if I'm come near you guys, come say hi. Absolutely. Okay. Um, all right. Thanks guys. Get to bed. Yeah. Talk to you. Thanks, Matthew. And that, Jay, is our interview with Matthew Sweet. It was sweet. Excellent use (laughs) of the word sweet. No, but how great was that? It was unbelievable. Yeah. I was really taken aback how much time he was uh, willing to give us. I tried to make him stop a couple times, and he just kept going. <laughs> no, I but didn't it, realize he, he had moved back to Omaha either. Yeah, been around, you know, yeah. Omaha to Athens, Georgia to New York City to L.A., moving around all different places. Just an absolute treat to have him on the show. Not something I ever expected when we started this podcast. Let me just put it that way. No, no. <laughs> Want to remind everybody, if you liked this episode, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. And of course, if there is an album that you would like us to review, head on over to digmeoutpodcast.com to our request review page and request a review. That's it. Next month, we're back to normal. No theme. We're just going to be doing some reviews, a couple of requested reviews. We've got a roundtable coming up. And another interview at the end of the month. So stick around for that. Jay, a very excellent episode in the books. I can't say any more how much fun it was because it was just so much fun. We're virtually slapping each other on the ass right now. We are. High fives all around, low fives, middle fives, everything. So, everyone, thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages.